All right, if you have a Bible with you today, would you turn to Exodus chapter 32? We're going to begin and base our thoughts today out of Exodus 32. And I guess it'd be all right to let you know, if you want, just stick a little ribbon or paper in Ezekiel chapter 22, Exodus 32, Ezekiel 22. We're just being... Ezekiel for a couple minutes here in a minute as we get towards the introduction. Now, in Exodus chapter 32, if you go there, of course, you know, understanding things in context as far as getting an idea of where you're at, and, and in fact, in, in getting the forest and not the trees, there is, a, there is a danger in just taking a text in many cases, not every case at all, but in many cases, there's a danger in taking a text and then pulling something out and then expounding upon it. And here's one of the dangers. The person doing it, could be me, you, anybody, or it could be you know, some of you preachers. It, the, the thing that happens is, is that your mind is already processing and absorbing many things. And maybe you come across a, a passage reading or you uh, bring, bring back to mind a certain passage and that passage fits in with, with a larger context, a forest, and you find, say, a verse or even a little passage and that's a tree in the forest. And so you might direct people's attention to that tree with the intention of them understanding the whole picture. But many times it's hard for people to get the whole picture if we don't see it to begin with a little bit. So in Exodus 32, it's really important to get the whole picture first. And that whole picture is that you are with Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, so many times we are in danger of grabbing types. And I, I'm all about understanding types and applying them and all that. And immediately trying to force everything into that type. <laughs> Some have taken that wilderness and they've forced it into the type of being, you know, the space between getting saved and a person entering into the crucified life with, you know, the crossing of Jordan and the leading of Joshua, the Old Testament equivalent of the word Jesus, uh, with all that being, you know, entering into the crucified life and understanding and death to self, crossing Jordan and leaving the stones in the water and new stones out of the water on the west side and all that. That's good. But sometimes it's really good to get a hold of the forest of where it's at in that process. So while it's true that God doesn't want you or I as Christians to remain in the wilderness, He wants us to not uh, re refuse to go out or doubt to go in like they did in Numbers 13 and Numbers chapter 14. While all that's true, there is also some lessons within the small forest that we find in these passages. And Exodus 32 is one of those forests, and there's a couple trees in it. And in this forest, what you've got is you've, in chapter 31 and the, era, the time leading up to it, 
God is instructing them and God is leading them and God is giving Moses these amazing things to give them. And in chapter 31, verse 18, if you look at it down the page there, he gave unto Moses when he'd made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimonies, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So that is the context of our subject today. It's not the context of trying to take in the whole forest of the wilderness wanderings, but this is a part of it. So the big picture is Moses is tied up with the Lord. He's spending time with God for 40 days, <coughs> 40 nights on the mountain. Aaron's trying to look after these people, this flock of sheep, so to speak. And in verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus... When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this, this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, uh, that should have been maybe like a trigger point for him and said, Whoops, wait a minute. What are we thinking? God used him to bring us up. We need to just calm down here a little bit. Right? We what not. We don't know what has become of him. And Aaron's caught up in it and says unto them, Bring off the golden earrings. Now, in defense of Aaron, you might say, or in understanding of Aaron, he's got a lot of people on his hands, and he's got a lot of energy coming towards him that is anxious, and it's superstitious. And, and I've written in the margin of my Bible, and I've done a few messages on this idea, but it's the spiritual Stockholm syndrome of slaves. It's the spiritual Stockholm syndrome of captives. You know, they had their lives scheduled for them before they left Egypt. They had their lives all laid out before them. And it was, and they, they don't remember at this time all the bad parts. All they can remember is our emotions and our senses. We, we seem like we're a kite without a tail and we don't have Moses to look at and him to set us straight. And, and so the picture is as sheep having no shepherd. And then if you've read your Bible and if not, get caught on, up on this section later. So he gets the gold from them and he makes the golden calf. And they are basically, they're worshiping. Uh, look at verse 6. They rose up early on the morrow and offered up burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They are, they are partying in the flesh, so to speak, in a so-called, they think, a worship spiritual nature. Verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go. Get thee down for thy people. <laughs> now, now listen. You either really are willing to be a shepherd or you're not. But you don't get to be a shepherd of any kind of leader, whether it be of just you and your wife or you and your wife and a few children or you and a son. You don't get to be the shepherd when you feel like it or when the sheep are behaving properly. God is saying, these are the people I put you in charge of, so thy people, look, middle of verse 7, which thou brought us out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, didn't God bring them out? Yes. Didn't God, wasn't God their shepherd? Yes. But you see, in God's mind, in our relationship with God and others, we've got to enter into this thing and take that responsibility. Now, watch. Your job isn't to control whoever God put in your little 
area of leadership, of shepherdship. Okay? But it is to be bound to them and enter into something that we're going to look at here today. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, have worshipped, have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That stiff neck is not talking about when you wake up in the morning. That stiff neck is the result of your will. If you've worked with livestock much, let's take horses. Horses are the perfect example. Although you could use oxen or cattle, but a horse is a perfect example of what happens when something gets stiff-necked. And he talks about, he likes them unto cattle, and he likes them to a backsliding, ever one that pulls back against the rope instead of letting you lead it. But when a horse gets its neck stiff, when it strengthens its, its neck, you're in trouble. Anybody who's ever messed with horses knows the smartest thing to do before you get on, the wisest thing to do, for, safest thing to do before you get on a horse is do what they call groundwork. You get them saddled, bridled, all that, or whatever, and you make them turn in circles a little bit while you're on the ground. You bend their neck. You see, when they can bend their neck, you can move them and turn them. Where their head goes, their rear end turns the other way and follows. You ever get a horse running off with you, the hardest thing you'll ever have to do is try to stop it by merely pulling back on the reins and letting its head get down and get its neck all bowed down. You turn its head, it knows it can't run as fast as it wants because it'll fall over and it has a a self-preservation of itself when it comes to that. Stiff-necked, couldn't be led. It is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Look at verse 11. And the Lord, I mean, and Moses, sorry, Moses besought the Lord and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. <coughs> so Moses is interceding. He's reminding the Lord that he and the Lord are in this together. He's reminding the Lord that in verse 12 if the Lord kills them that, that all, the, all the heathen are going to say is God couldn't get them out. And he says in verse 12 at the end he says turn from thy fierce wrath and repent for this evil against thy people. And he asked him to remember, you know, his covenant. But look at verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil. Now, do you think the Lord repented because he was wrong in his attitude towards the people? No. Do you think he repented because he had sinned against the people in his mind? No. No, no, no. You say repent of this evil. Evil is not wickedness or sin. Evil in this context and in your English language is when something bad's going to happen to you. God was going to do something major to them, and the Lord repented of it. So Moses goes down the mountain, <laughs> and look at uh, <laughs> verse 15. He goes down the mountain. He's got both the tablets in, her hand, in his hand. And as he goes down the mountain, and he hears all this stuff, and they're all upset. In verse 19, it came to pass as soon as he came... To, Nine of the camp, he saw the calf, the dancing, Moses' anger waxed hot. He cast the table out of his hands and, hands and break them beneath them out. One old preacher said, this shows show that a man can break all ten commandments at one time if he gets mad enough. <laughs> Which he did, but 
He broke them as in smashed them. And they go through this judgment and he preaches these people. I want to pick it up in verse 30 for the sake of time and continuity to understand it now. So this has happened. God is reminding Moses he's a shepherd. Moses reminds God he's a shepherd too. They're in it together. And God wants to judge them. The Lord changed his mind about it. That, and this passage, when, when God repented, he changed his complete mind about it and said, okay, I've preached several times on changing God's mind. Many times. Verse 30, It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sins. He said, I'm going to do my best to stand between you and God as a help. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and there's a line there in your King James Bible. I've always thought of this verse in Romans where he said he had many intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered. I, I, it was almost like Moses right here groans. And says then, if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which I was written. He says, like Paul said, he said, I, I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, Lord, this means so much that, and, and I can't make atonement with my life, but Lord, if you're not going to forgive him, just blot me out too. And the Lord said unto Moses, Who swear of sin against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people into the place which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin. And the Lord plagued the people because they had made the calf which Aaron made. <coughs> what did God not do? He didn't destroy them. He didn't destroy them. Did some of them have to pay a price? Yes. Keep the big picture with me. Big picture. Listen, do not, do not, do not. Please, for this few minutes I have your attention here tonight. Do not get caught up on whatever country your mind is on. Let's say United States of America. Do not get caught up on trying to save America right now. Please. Do not get caught up in all the different junk that says this is why God's judging America because the church has done this or the heathen done this. And Just get this big picture with me. Hold your place. We're coming back here. Exodus chapter... Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. We're going to read two verses. You're very familiar with these verses. And you may think this is my subject, and you're close, but you're not. Watch. Verse 30. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, mark it, and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. He said, I... Saw a man that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. And I want to speak to you on kneeling in the gap. I've heard some, some powerful messages and powerful truths on standing in the gap. And it's great. It is. It's good. You know, having done all to stand and all that. But I want to picture you to picture with me kneeling in the gap and thereby making up the hedge. Kneeling in the gap. I want you to picture this. What's needed today is prayer. 
And in the same manner, in the same manner, see, if kneeling in the gap will make up a hedge also. We, we pray a hedge around people. I hope you do constantly. You see, Moses had a choice. Some people would say, I'll stand in the gap. Well, would you, will you kneel in the gap and make up the hedge? You know, God's people getting sideways with the Lord, that's just, that's historical. What I'm amazed at is Christians who think that they would never get sideways with God, and they might even be sideways right now. Oh, they're to church. They don't miss a meeting. They might even have duties at church. They might even teach or preach. But oh, they're all about the children of Israel getting sideways with God. But if they slowed down long enough, and if they kept short enough accounts of how they treat people, what they think, what they say, lukewarmness, lack of intensity sometimes. Oh, not lack of busyness. Oh my. No, not lack of busyness. I mean on the go. That's, that's Christians today. American Christians. Uh, westernized Christians. And not trying to identify a specific fault of the day, but rather kneeling in the gap to make up the hedge. I'm just going to mention three or four things here, or four or five according to time. Number one, the privilege of the people. The privilege of the people. And this is, applies to everyone within the sound of my voice that's saved. The privilege of the people. See, God chose Abraham and He chose Isaac and He chose Jacob and then He continued to pass it on. And then he made that tribe of Judah who was humble and confessed twice that others were greater than him and put himself on the line. And God basically moved heaven and earth and judged the world as in judged Egypt to get them out. And you see, it's a great privilege for Israel to be who they are. And they didn't earn it. And while we are completely for God restoring Israel, we understand that what they're suffering, sadly enough, is because they did not appreciate the privilege they had. They began to treat it as a right and not a privilege. You know, in Romans 9, there's a passage, you might want to mark it, between chapter six and chapter 9, verses 16 to 24. And he develops the thought that it is not, verse 16, though it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now there are so many today that are trying, there's an increased number of people trying to say, well that means God chooses who will get saved. No, it doesn't. What is mercy? Mercy is when you do not get the judgment you deserve. So God says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then he tells us whom that is. And he makes a universal rule that anyone can get under God's mercy. But you cannot have God's mercy if you will not submit to God. That's why it's called in Romans 1, obedience to the gospel. So you see, it's not, I will show mercy on whomever I pick, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's not. It's not a lottery. It's not God looking down and said, yeah, you and you, and you can have mercy. 
No, mercy is, is not getting the judgment you deserve. And he said, on whom I will. Well, who will he? He said, whosoever he, whosoever, what? May come. Whosoever will may come. Why? Because God said so. But here's the point. So to be one of those whosoevers is a privilege. So whether it's the Israel of the Old Testament <coughs> or it's us, as you read down through Romans 9, look, verse 21, Hath not the power, potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel and honor another dishonor? What if God willing to show His wrath to make His power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? A vessel like Pharaoh that fights God, refuses against God, puts his will against God, he is fitting himself for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Listen, God knew ahead of time. I don't understand this, and you don't. And if you try to understand it, you'll end up being a fatalist, an ultra-Calvinist, because God knew who'd get saved, and yet he didn't let it affect his behavior or his treatment of mankind. He said, for God so loved the world he gave. So we're greatly privileged ourselves to be Christians because, look, verse 24, even us, believers, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's a privilege. <coughs> you know, the dictionary definition of privilege is to enjoy a pe peculiar right or immunity. One of the examples he gives is no man is privileged from arrest for indictable crimes. Webster's. So we're privileged. You say we're a peculiar people. We are. We are. You know, it is an amazing thing that God would give us his words. In chapter 31, 18 of Exodus, which I hope you've kept there, it says that he came down off that mountain with those tables written in the finger of God. Okay, so one of the great things that we remember and we learn and we understand is that we are privileged. The second thing is the propensity of the people. You might call it the problems of the people or the plague of the people, but the propensity is this, is that it, it is in us because of the fallen nature and depending on your past experience, individually as a Christian, that spiritual Stockholm Syndrome is in there. Everyone has a temptation of sorts. For some people, the temptation is the good life. For some people, the temptation is the bad life. But they're actually both a temptation to get away from God. You see, for some who got saved, turned their back on the world, turned their face to the cross, you know, the world behind me, the cross before me, for some, going back to the world is not going back to a bottle or a needle or thievery or thuggery. It's going back to making money. Even in an honest way, so-called, of making money. It might be going back to a life of leisure where your Sundays are your own, where your worship days are your own, where your time is your own, where your mind is your own. And you do things and you read and you exercise... You see, if we're not careful, what we forget is that there is a propensity in mankind to think that it's better where they were. 
In other words, a place in your mind that seems and feels safety and better. Come to Psalm 55. I don't know how far we'll get with this today, but Psalm 55. My subject is kneeling in the gap. Kneeling in the gap and making up a hedge. But I want us to see the situation, why there's so much need for someone, for a, a man, a woman to decide, a teenager to decide, I will kneel in the gap. I will make up the hedge of intercession. Psalm 55, 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint, make a noise because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me and wrath they hate me. May I say this to you? So many people today, they, they, they miss one of the great powers of the book of Psalms they miss that David is describing most of the time, most of the time, more than an outward battle, an inward battle. He's describing most of the time what goes on inside a believer. Whether you like it or not, much of, most of the Old Testament is about our walk with God. Most of the law of Moses was about staying in fellowship with each other and God. It wasn't about trying to work your way to heaven and a little bit of faith and works. It wasn't. You see, it was about knowing God and about victory. So if you think of it that way, my heart is sore pained within me. The terrors of death are falling upon me. I don't know about you, but there are times, not that we're afraid to die and go to heaven. Sometimes we're afraid, I wonder if I'm ready to die. Not as in I'm ready as in saved. Not as in I'm ready as in, oh my goodness, uh, what will happen? No, it's am I ready because of what I'll leave behind for others to have to take care of? I mean, sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, I wonder if I've got it, you know, if I've got this stuff in order for them. There's all kind of things about that. Now watch, fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, horror hath overwhelmed me. There are people that are afraid they're going to run out of food. People are afraid they're going to run, that they're going to, you know, the powers that be, the government's going to take away your, your uh, money. Why, there's some people that are scared to death that they might not be able to do whatever they feel like doing whenever they feel like doing. That's funny. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, look, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would, want, would I wander off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Why? Because that's how our minds work. The propensity for us. To turn. You see, for some, it's to withdraw. For some, it is to uh, pursue. For some, it's to wander around. For some, it's some it's withdrawal. Some it's wander around. Some it's to wish in their mind. For some, it's just work, work, work. Now, that is our propensity also when it's very likely God's tapping us on the shoulder and saying, I need somebody to kneel in the gap and make up the hedge. Oh, when we talk about stand and let your voice be heard and let people know what you believe and, you know, st speak out against this law and that law and this stuff that's going on. But wait a minute, what about you on your knees or walking around in the yard or out in the field or on your face kneeling in the gap for God's people? You know, God used a plague to deal with their 
their root plague. And that's going to happen. I want to talk about the third thing quickly. The panic and the pressure of the people. The pressure on Aaron was was proportionate. It was immense. <clears throat> if you think, for example, if you're a pastor, a leader, a, a, a husband and father in the home, the, you can't imagine the pressure Aaron had. Not saying it was right what he did, but it was amazing pressure. The, it was proportionate to the panic that was arising from these people. And then when that plague hits, of course, then they start gradually coming to their senses. But for the most part, this panic built up and then something has to go. Listen, it was 40 days, not six months. But 40 days seemed like such a long time to them. You know, I remember one time, one of the places we did with horses, it was up in the northern part of the United States, Midwestern sort of Ohio. It was winter time, where we had the horses and wintered them and had the breeding farm. We, yeah, you had to ride about, it was about an hour and a half, I guess, to school one way on the bus each time. And, I wanted to play on the basketball team, so after school I'd get to practice, and they had a bus that would run within about, oh, say, 10 miles of the house. And then I would arrange, I'd ride home with the bus driver. He parked the bus at his house at night, and I'd get to, the folks would come get me. And then one night, they didn't show up. And it was snowing. It's so funny. I couldn't make this up. So I started walking, thinking I was going to walk home. And it was cold and all that. And you know, it felt like a hundred miles. I didn't get all the way home. They finally showed up. Just some things that happened, whatever. You said, well, maybe they forgot you. Well, I don't blame them. <laughs> I would have forgot me too. But my point is, it seemed like such a long time. But it wasn't. The panic and the pressure that we experience as humans is it's comical when we look back, but it's not comical when we feel it. And the panic and the pressure, it can cause amazing people to do amazing things. I mean, sad things, tragic things. Navy SEALs say calm is contagious, and I'm sure they're not the only ones that say it. There's another branch that says cowardice is contagious. Well, they both are. And that pressure that came upon Aaron comes upon people as leaders, any of us. I would say first, as a leader, we have to be prepared for it in hearts and minds. And the more we've been kneeling in the gap to make up the heads, the better off we are and the more use we are to people and help. I would say to you who are under leadership, whether you be a fellow in the church or whether you be a, a, a wife in the home or say teenagers, you teenagers are old enough, some you, you are. You're very smart about things and you can learn very quickly about what it is to contribute to what's going on in a positive way within the home. But understand that there's this pressure of the panic of the people. There's the price of the people. Look at Exodus chapter 32 with me for a minute and verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest up. God puts these things on us on purpose. 
the people interrupted what might have been the greatest mountaintop experience of the whole Old Testament. There might have been a greater mountaintop experience on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and maybe the the one where the Mount where the Lord ascended to heaven, Acts chapter one. But but for the most part, this, he may have interrupted the greatest. These people may have interrupted the greatest mountaintop experience of all time. Being the pastor, being the sheepdog, cost Moses. Even his experience, you might say, ultra experience with the Lord. That doesn't mean you don't have your fellowship with God as a leader, but I will tell you this from from experience that there's a price to pay for being a sheepdog, for being a leader of any kind and a pastor. And it nearly cost the people everything. Their propensity for this thing their propensity for how they treated their privilege nearly cost them everything. And it's, that is just the price of the fact that we are people, we are humans and not animals. That is the price that happens when we are in our hearts and minds allowing things to distract us from our faith in God. I understand there's all kinds... Of, one person has said... Every failure is a prayer failure. I don't know. Every failure is a faith fa- failure. I, I, I don't think you could say, make one statement, but I know this. This would have been tragic without Moses kneeling in the gap and making up the hedge. You know, I, I'm not even going to go to the verses. You can look them up. <clears throat> but it cost, the price of, of, of the people, it cost Moses entering into the promised land. You say, well, Moses didn't have to hit the rock the second time. I know that. But your Bible says, your Bible says, that in Psalms they provoked him. Okay? Your Bible purposely records that the people pushed him too far. He shouldn't have done it. But I hate to tell you, some of y'all are just so self-righteous. If you had that many people riding you for that period of time, you'd done more than smote a rock twice. Yeah. You would have been on TV for all kind of uh, <laughs> retaliation to the people. But I want to... Sum it all up here in our last few minutes with the the pastor of the people. In chapter 32, verse 9 to 14, Moses and the Lord talk. Moses makes intercession. The Lord changes his mind. In chapter chapter 32 there, verses 30 down to verse 35, Moses stand there. A few thoughts. Number one, he interceded face-to-face with God. Now, I know God's in heaven now, and we don't see Him face-to-face. But you know that we are facing Him, and we speak to Him when we go into our prayer closet. I would say this when I, when I, as I speak to you here today. Every Christian, every Christian can answer this call to kneel in the gap and make up the hedge. You don't have to be a male, for sure. You don't have to be a pastor. But I am appealing to those who have influence over people of any level. Listen, you might be a discipler of, of people. You know, it takes patience and grace to disciple people, but the one missing element much of the time, not all the time, every you can't say every failure is from one thing, but much of it is a lack of kneeling in the gap. The enemy gets through the hedge as described there in Jeremiah. 
The enemy gets, in Ezekiel rather, 22, the enemy gets through the hedge because there's a little spot about as wide as a person's shoulders. And it could be a little narrow gap with little narrow soldiers of a little of a woman. It could be the big wide shoulders of the biggest, widest, broadest shouldered man. Whatever it is, that gap is left there because someone's not kneeling in the gap to make up the hedge. Interceded. He instructed the people as to their error. You know, it is important for us, I believe, with all my heart, for us to remember how important it is for intercession. It is important for us to understand all these verses. And I'm going to leave you to get some verses for yourself from God if you decide to do it. You know in Hebrews 7.25 He said He ever liveth to make intercession for us. That's true. But in your Bible, you, you cannot miss it in Paul's epistles what he thought of prayer and personal prayer and people being consistent in prayer and persistent in prayer. He instructed the people. He taught the people. That takes the grace of God. Anybody can have an attitude and open the Bible. But it takes the grace of God to open it in a pastoral, shepherding point of view. He interposed himself between the people and the Lord. He stepped in between. And he didn't step in between and face the people and start banging them on the head. He stood between them and first faced the Lord and made intercession and pleaded for them. And then because he had done that, he had the heart to be able to face the people. He said, well, he had to give them some hard news. He did. He did. But his heart was different because he had already faced God the pastor of the people. I would say there's probably no one here or even out there in the, in the sound of my voice that doesn't have some people they need to be kneeling in the gap and making up the hedge for. I had thought about putting together and just jotting down, you know, <laughs> tons of illustrations on prayer and how it did, but you already know that. That would be a a place for that would be in, you know, things on answers to prayer. But, but you know this. You know it's so. You know people need your prayers. You know prayer works. And let me say this to you before I close. No, we don't know what would have happened to Israel if Moses had not made intercession. But if God is true and every man a liar and God cannot lie, then he was going to wipe them out if Moses did not kneel in the gap and make up the hedge. And you and I do not know how many times we might stand between people and God and we might keep the enemy out and help keep them in by us kneeling in the gap to make up the hedge and keep that hedge around them complete, those boundaries between the devil and them, between the world and them, between their own flesh ruling them and them. You know the one thing that we can do that nothing else can do? And that is pray and intercede. There are hundreds of things we cannot do when it comes to helping people. There are hundreds of ways we cannot protect people. We can't be with them. We can't even protect. We could be in the same vehicle and there's an accident. We can't protect them. We might not be able to protect our own selves. 
illness, disease, plagues, pandemics, finances. We can't personally touch those. But we can stand between God and others. We can kneel in the gap. Make up the hedge. And I'm going to leave you with this. I would rather have spent my time kneeling in that gap, making up the hedge, facing outward to the enemy, making intercession with the Lord. I would rather do that and something go wrong than to not do it and something go wrong and wonder, should I have been kneeling in the gap? With children, it should start before they're born, but when they're born. With a new convert, it should start when they're... With a lost soul, it should start as soon as you get a burden for them. You ought to have your prayer list. You ought to hold yourself to the thing. You ought to just say, Lord, I, I'm going to kneel in this. I'm going to be in this. I'm going to make up this gap. There's a gap and I'm going to fill it. Every single day, someone who has been interceding for a handful of people or even hundreds goes home to heaven. And there it is. There's a gap created. I remember when I heard that Dr. Rabine went home to heaven years and years ago and he had in his basement chairs with people's names on them and mine was on it, my dad's and other people's was on it. I felt a hole in my heart immediately when I knew that he wasn't there. He would pray for so many of us every single day. I heard one of Dr. Green's sons talking about his dad went in his massive prayer list right before he passed home to heaven. Who knows? You know, rather than sit around and saying, boy, I sure am going to miss their prayers, well, why don't you decide to go and kneel in the gap and make up a hedge for others? Oh, nobody's going to know you're doing it. And please don't make a list and start telling everybody how big your list is and how many hours a day you pray. Why don't you just leave that to God? But what if you don't? What if you don't? And you always wonder, Lord, what might have happened? What might have been prevented? What, might, what blessing might have been brought by that? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. As we close out the message, we pray, Lord, you'd use this. Burden others to kneel in the gap and to make up the hedge, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.